Versailles was the grandest palace anyone in Europe had ever seen, but it led to a popular revolt against Louis XIV when the people of France saw where their money was going. The monarchy was completely disconnected from the real world. They had no idea. Coming up, we get expert advice for touring the epitome of extravagance without letting the crowd spoil the view. We'll also look at what France is dealing with today as its citizens ask what kind of country they want to be. Oh, absolutely. We're not going to be terrorized by the terrorists. And we'll hear the impressions of a skeptical American who went on a free birthright tour of Israel. Sarah Glidden portrays the stories of the people she encountered in a graphic novel that looks at the complexities of modern Israel. It's easy to identify as a young Jewish American. You know, there's a lot of things culturally in common, but then there are a lot of differences. The issues they're debating in Israel and France, plus tips for touring the Palace of the Sun King. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. It's a free trip to Israel. American Jews in their late teens and 20s can apply to Birthright Israel to visit the Holy Land. When Sarah Glidden went, it seemed to her that her sponsors had their own political agenda. And some of what she heard seemed to amplify the conflict with their Palestinian neighbors. To help illustrate what she observed, Sarah created her first graphic novel. It's called How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less. Sarah tells us what she learned about life in Israel in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. The French have a big national election coming up. We'll hear what people are debating in France as they consider what kind of country they want to be. That's in just a few minutes. Just over 200 years ago, France was ruled by the Sun King. Whatever Louis XIV said, that was law. To prove it, he built the most extravagant palace in Europe at Versailles. It's just outside of Paris. The opulent chateau and incredible gardens showed the rest of the world what a palace could look like, and it served as the seat of France's government for a hundred years. Today, as a museum, it's overwhelmed with visitors and requires a little expert advice to help put together an enjoyable visit. Our guests are tour guides who specialize in showing Americans the great sights of France. Patrick Vidal lives in Brittany, and American-born Julie Sanvaux is raising her family in Burgundy. Patrick and Julie, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Bonjour. 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 Now, Patrick, what does Versailles symbolize to a French person? Well, Versailles symbolizes the old power of France, the time when uh, Louis XIV was uh, running Europe and being the big guy with the big muscles. I mean, Versailles is really showing the muscles of the monarchy. So that's one side of it. And the second side is where Louis XVI was arrested and taken to the uh, guillotine and uh, the end of the monarchy as well. So it's a lot of history in the same place, only one place. It's a very interesting place. So there is a lot of centuries of French kings and uh, really is the last century really. Yeah, it's, that, it didn't last very long. I mean, you think, this, yeah. uh, you think Louis XIV, 15 and 16, that's about it. Could you say that Louis XIV was sort of the pinnacle of this idea of the divine monarch? Definitely, yeah. Absolute monarchy was at its best or as its most, I should say, with Louis XIV, and that's the beginning of the end. That's because the they overreached. Now, Julie Sanvo, when you think of the word divine monarch, uh, how do you explain that to your travelers? What is a divine monarch? Well, divine monarch, I think like what Patrick was trying to say is just that the world was revolving around him. He wanted to be the absolute monarch. He was Louis XIV, the first one that said, I'm the one that's going to make all the decisions here. And he designed his whole living situation, the Versailles, the, the chateau, and the city to revolve around him from the time he woke up in the morning until the time he went to bed at night. And so everything revolved around him like the sun. And so it was all about him. So he was nicknamed the Sun King. The Sun King, yes. I, I love that medallion where the sun is shining not on the people but on Louis and it bounces off of the king and warms up the people indirectly through their divine monarch. Through their divine, yes. 
Wow. And the big challenge was to con your people into thinking that God says you get to be king. Right. And publicize it in art and in everything to the propaganda out there proving it. Patrick, what's the famous French, uh, the state that's me? What is that? And Louis said, l'état c'est moi. It's yes. a rhyme, isn't it? Yeah, l'état c'est moi. That's as simple, that's as simple as that. It's uh, I am the state. I can, I can dictate my laws to absolutely anything. Think of the orangerie the big places where they grew uh, orange trees and lemon trees. Yeah. I can detect my law to the people, to everything else. I should be able to detect my law to trees as well, to the nature, to whatever I want to I want to turn to myself. So that's the way it works. There's this interesting notion. I'm, I'm just fascinated by this idea of really causing people to believe that God said, you get to be the king. And it seems to me, Julie, that the king needed to control nature to impress on his people that God ordained him to be powerful. Well, in his gardens was a big way that he did that. He would actually have the plants changed at night. So when he woke up in the morning, there would be different plants there. If it was freezing cold outside and there weren't supposed to be orange trees, there would be orange trees anyway. So he was in control of of that kind of thing. So if I was a commoner and I would uh, stroll out to Versailles, I would see orange trees and I would go, oh, I'm so thankful that my king can grow orange trees. Nobody else can. (laughs) Think think of the uh, construction of the state. I mean, it was the clergy, the nobility and the rest of the world. So the clergy and the nobility have always worked together to make people believe that they had the power in their hand. And the absolute top of that is the king running absolutely everything and being a god. And that's, that's the old regime. That's, that's the, the idea. Before they cut the king's head off and, and, regime, the, yes. and the people uh, had enough. Mm-hmm. When you're taking your groups out to Versailles, Patrick, what is one thing that you impress upon the group so you can understand the importance of Versailles? How I think you... that's, that's what uh, Julie said before. It's the fact that it was built around him. And if you look at certain points, certain places in the town, in, the, in front of the chateau, you see the chateau itself. And then you turn around and you see the town which was built. The streets of the town were built to imitate the ray of the sun facing the, uh, the east, the, the rays of the sun. And also, there was no building allowed to be as tall or taller than the chateau itself. You get off the train coming in from Paris and you walk around the corner and there it is. There it is. is. It's symmetrical. (laughs) It's a grand boulevard and you feel like, holy cow, this guy is powerful. I better fall in line. Before you get there, when you leave the train, you get to the corner where you see the chateau and you turn around and you see the town hall. Uh And the town hall is taller than the chateau, but the town hall is 19th century. So that wouldn't have been... That's been built after. Post-decapitation. Absolutely. That's a republic republic thing. Uh, The republic republic is is trying to show that they are taller than the the chateau. You know, that's a fundamental thing about traveling in France. It's just this... The French really were groundbreaking in stopping the old regime and establishing the people's government, the republic. But it took a lot of blood. It took a lot well, of blood yeah. and, and several revolutions. It yeah. didn't go away easily. Right. Yeah, we always think yeah. of the French Revolution like, okay, French Revolution happened and, and it was Republic and that's yeah. we were running from yeah. there. It took 100 years. 100 years. 100 years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the Third Republic and it, Republic for Good is uh, 1871. Fascinating. So it's a long, long time, yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Patrick Vidal and Julie Sonvo. We're talking about Versailles. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Ash is on the line in Detroit. Ash, thanks for your call. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So me and my husband will be visiting Paris, and we would like to make a trip to Versailles, spend about a whole day there. I read a lot about Louis XIV, and he been called the Sun King. So we are really looking forward to the trip. And as a first-time traveler, we're looking for some tips, you know, on planning our first trip to Paris and to Versailles. 
Julia, a major challenge is dealing with the crowds. Ash is going to be there. Any advice on handling the crowds at Versailles? Yeah, there's a lot. of The line is really, really long. And if you're an individual wanting to get in to have the museum pass, it's going to be your best bet to be able to butt in the, that line. And, okay, so and that get in. big, long line right. is people waiting to buy a ticket. But if you buy this Paris Museum Pass, it includes nearly all the major sites, including Versailles. Then you have to be sort of aggressive and get to the front of the line. Yes, you do. Yeah, and then and you can actually that's save. Being French. You can save an hour. So <laughs> your your advice: be French. Be uh, French. Get up to the front um, of the line. You've got the pass. The timing is essential as well. So it's better to be there in the morning, early as early as possible, to get the opening of the doors and to get less people. But also places like the uh, the Petit Trianon and the extra chateaus you can see in the gardens are open only in the afternoon. So okay. you, you want to play a little bit with that. Know when the museums, when the palace is going to close, and that the closing time is probably the last entry time. Yes. And if it's really crowded in the middle of the day, you could go out into the grounds. Absolutely. And, come and, back and, and the then come end. back later. And a good tip as well about Versailles is to explore the town itself as well, because it's a purpose-built town which we overlook very often that we don't go to at all. But it's a very interesting town. The the cathedral itself, the center of the little Mm -hmm. market twice or three times a week. And it's a very, very interesting little town, which is worth walking out. And you've got a little bit of a village feeling with uh, Mm -hmm. built in the 1700s. France was the most centralized government. And when the royalty was at the palace, you yeah, had a whole town to support. The Absolutely. Whole I mean, town. the idea about, about the Chateau de Versailles originally for Louis XIV was to bring the nobility out of their comfort of Paris, take them next to him in the Chateau de Versailles now, as as uncomfortably as possible, as possible. Now that was a very interesting power trick for the king to control the nobility. That was called the domestication of yes, the nobility. Yeah, what, yeah. Exactly what was but that? But the idea was the uh, I mean during his childhood there was a, a noble front revolution kind of right. thing. They they almost lost the power. So as soon as Louis XIV took power, he decided that he wanted to reign on his own. He didn't want the nobles to get as much power as they had before. So he was traumatized by the nobles when he was a child Absolutely. and very aggressive as yeah. an adult. Ash, thanks for your call. I hope you have a great time at Versailles. Thank you so much. Thanks for all the tips. You thanks bet. A lot. Bye now. And Phyllis is calling in from Demotte in Indiana. Phyllis, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking my call. Um, the last time that I went to Versailles, I went on a day when the fountains were on, and they were just amazing. I just can't even imagine going when they are off <laughs> from now on. But we did find um, that there was quite a bit of crowd. Um, and I'm wondering, I, you say to go to the gardens or the Trianon first, but does that really help? And will there be a time to get in the palace? I mean, we had the Paris Museum pass. But there was still a really long line to get into the palace. That's a good question. Julie, do you risk when you go in the afternoon physically not getting into the palace because the line is so long? Well, you'd have to watch your timing on that. The crowd peters out toward the end of the day. It does, it does. But if you really want to make sure that you get into the chateau, then Mm -hmm. be there early in the morning. And Versailles is a crowded place, so when you go at the time when the fountains are running, it's going to be a double, it's it's on weekends and starts in spring around April or May, something like that. So it's it's mainly on Saturday, Sunday. Saturday and Sunday in in the season, that would be more crowded. And then one day of the week, the palace is closed. Which is the Monday, if I've got it right. I think it's Monday, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's Monday. Therefore, yeah. uh, it's going to be more crowded on Tuesday. Tuesday, mm-hmm. Tuesday is a really crowded Because day. everything's closed in Paris mm. and Lot the palace was closed yeah. the day before. And, so. yeah. and then weekends, naturally on weekends, plus the fact that the fountains are on brings more people as so well. So Wednesday and Thursday and Friday might be the less crowded yeah. times to go. Phyllis, thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Patrick Vidal and Julie Sonvo about Versailles, the greatest palace in Europe, I think it's fair to say. When I'm there, I just think of the triumph of the commoner. 
When you go to Versailles, how do you think of the old regime in the modern world? Well, when I go out to Versailles and when I take groups out to Versailles, they get it. They get the revolution when they see the spending out there. And of course, it's fabulous that we have it and all, all the art and the architecture and the gardens. And it's beautiful, but it's so over the top that you understand how the people felt. And especially when they went out there and saw what was going on out there, um, how the revolution could get such an ampleur. And eventually they went out there with their paring knives and their rolling pins and they brought them into town and yeah. the house arrest and eventually mm-hmm. chopped off their heads. I look at it from the other side. I mean, from the monarchy's side and... Uh, Think of the sentence that uh, Marie Antoinette uh, arguably said, uh, they don't have uh, bread, give them cakes. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting to look at that and think that the monarchy was completely disconnected from the real world. They had no idea. They thought everything was fine. They, mm. di- they didn't have any contact with the real world. They were so detached from reality. Absolutely. They couldn't see what was going on and what came on. They should have. And maybe there's a lesson today for uh, leaders and mm, politicians maybe, who maybe, might be detached maybe. from reality. <laughs> Julie Sanvo and Patrick Vidal, merci bien. This is very interesting about Versailles. Avec plaisir. <laughs> Julie and Patrick are staying with us for our next segment to provide a look at today's France and the issues they're facing when you ask what it means to be French in 2017. A little later in the hour, Sarah Glidden tells us about her first impressions of Israel as a young Jewish American. Stay with us, s'il vous plaît. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll take you into the cave of a winery in the Alsace region of France in a little bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. France sits at the heart of a changing Europe. The challenges of integrating immigrants from their former colonies, the recent wave of refugees, terror attacks, and even Britain's exit from the European Union are among the issues French citizens are facing as they get ready for the first round of their presidential election. Julie Sanvo and Patrick Vidal are with us right now to help us better understand today's France. Patrick and Julia, just tell me basically um, where you live in France and your, your quick story. Patrick? I live in Brittany on the western coast of France, and uh, I'm, I'm originally from the Spanish border. My parents are from the uh, Spanish origins. Vidal is from Spanish uh, roots. Oh, that's right. yeah, Patrick that's where, Vidal. That's where mm-hmm. it's coming from. And I grew up in the north of France, and I, I, I live pretty much everywhere in France. You really have yeah. been around. You were a, a barge boat uh, captain. Yeah, yeah I worked, I worked the seasonal, uh, seasonal jobs all my life. I've never worked 12 months a year, you know, so... <laughs> I've never done that. You had a crepe shop, didn't you, in Brittany? Uh, I had in a Brittany? crepe shop in Brittany as well. Very yeah, nice. I, I can tell you a few of them. That, that's, <laughs> but if you've got a bit of time, I can tell you all but my But lately, stories. your home is in Brittany. <laughs> yeah, I live in all Brittany right. now. Yeah. And Julie, you're from uh, Colorado, but you're French also. What's your story? All right. I was born in Kansas, but um, left Colorado to go to France because I was married to a Frenchman, uh-huh. a chef. Uh, we were making chocolate at the time. And uh, I live in Burgundy, but in the northwest part of Burgundy, not in the wine country. Okay, and how long have you been there? I've lived on a farm there for 13 years. So wasn't there a movie called Chocolat? Oui, Chocolat. Uh It it depicts my life pretty much. that's your life? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Except I haven't met Johnny Depp yet. Okay, but you (laughs) fell in love with the French chocolatier. Voilà, yes. Oh, well, you must know a lot about chocolate. Well, thanks for joining us. And I'm just curious to have a chance to talk to both of you. You know, Patrick, you've lived all over France, and to me, you're sort of the quintessential Frenchman. Uh, <laughs> and Julie, you're, you've got a good understanding of American culture and French culture as you've lived there for 13 years and married into the culture. France is really, along with Germany, the leading nation of the EU, it, it seems to me. How do you feel that the French, while 
so important to the EU are distinct from the EU? What does France bring to the EU? What, what is it that makes a French person French? Oh, that's a long story there. Uh, f- the first thing is that France is not really uh, a kind of, uh, it's a very composite identity. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, my family lives in the southwest of France. They go on vacation on the, on the Alsace, on the German border, or they come to Brittany, and for them, they're in a foreign country. The food is different, the way of life is different, the, uh, the architecture is different, the history is very different. So when we talk about French identity or French food or all that kind of things there, it's kind of an idea from the outside. I mean, from inside, it doesn't work like that. People don't have the same the same way of looking at things. So that's from here in the United States. I think France, escargot, you know. But if you live in France, very reasonably, a French person could spend their life thinking they're a traveler and go to the German part of France, the Italian Absolutely, part of France, yeah. the Spanish yeah. part of France. You know, I always compare when I when I um, explain France to American people. I always compare that in Europe, France is a bit of the United States of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, size, uh, size is different, but uh, but overall we've got uh, we've got a country where people for years and years and years didn't care about going abroad anywhere uh, outside of the borders because they had the beach, they had the uh, they had the mountains, they had the uh, desertic area, they had the, everything you want, they had big big towns, and you could travel in France just by being kind of exotic places. Yeah, from well, wherever when, you were coming. Well, when you think about it, and, France has more of that, uh, arguably, than other countries. Absolutely, the diversity of France is amazing on that, yeah. and means that people didn't care about learning foreign languages because. That was not important. In fact, that was one of the problems of World War I, is uh, I've read that the typical French person had never met a German of person. Of course, no. It was just a, for it was sure, a, yeah. another yeah. world. No idea, no idea. You didn't yeah, go there. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was easy to demonize them with propaganda both ways and both so Both ways, on. yeah. Mm-hmm. Today that's much different because the EU actually has a program designed to subsidize people to study and work in the next country. Yeah, it's called uh, Erasmus. Uh-huh. And, uh, it's, it's a big thing. A lot of young people going to study are, are using that and going abroad and spending, I think it works by six-month kind of uh, assignments. So Europe is actually spending taxpayer dollars to help people study in the next country? Yeah, yeah. Is that controversial, or do people think this is... Oh, no, people love it. People love it. It's a great thing. It's a great uh, eye-opener, yeah. (laughs) It just seems so radical to me. that I mean, it's not radical that a country would do it with those high ideals, but people love it. Oh, yeah, people love it, yeah. So, Julie, now you you married into France and uh, have lived there for 13 years. Uh, How do you see the French people as distinct from other Europeans? Well, I completely agree with Patrick. That's what I talk about a lot, too, is how um, France, the topography is like the whole United States. People travel and and they, they get to know their neighbors. Now, a French person will travel to another region of France, and that's where they'll spend their vacation. But they'll spend a couple of weeks there, and they'll learn everything about that. So France itself is very diverse. When I even describe that I live in the northwest part of Burgundy, it's very different than the southeast part of Burgundy. It is hard to overestimate how diverse France is. And when you travel there, you realize how you can't just draw a line and say Italy's here, France is there, Spain is here, France is there. The traditions, the cuisine, the culture, even the history. I mean, much of France in the north was part of Germany until after a war. Much of the Mediterranean area was Italian Italian until they had a plebiscite and so on. So when we think about France, you've got generous funding of health, education, retirement, uh, things we, we call entitlements. Is there a discussion now in France about what is the right value? I know that these entitlements were sustainable when you had a young population. But when you have an older population, it's harder to provide for these because there's not so many people working and paying taxes. What's the latest? First, first of all, France is one of the countries in Europe which has got the uh, the birth rate, the highest birth rate. Oh, is We're that right? still around, yeah, like like alongside with the states, we are one point nine two. 
something okay. like that. I don't know how you make 1.9 kids, but uh, that's... Uh, <laughs> well, the French can figure it out. <laughs> but Germany or Spain have got 1.4. So they are, they are aging aging population. When France doesn't have as much this problem. Okay, so not, that's a, a problem a elsewhere. No. Hmm, yeah. Good. But uh, policies on, uh, from government after the Second World War have always been very strong on helping people to have kids. Promoting Mat- families. Promoting. Yes. Mat- maternity so leaves and daycares and stuff like that have always been pretty cheap and mm-hmm. pretty affordable and pretty easy mm-hmm. to access from the Second World War. And staying with the Second World War there, that's at the end of the Second World War that all those uh, health system, all that kind of uh, social benefits were created, installed in France. It was a big, big thing. And they were, they were huge. They were very, very important. But, but little now, by little, we're losing them, kind of scratching a few things and... Uh, Society is getting more conservative. And so that's just uh, the rising tide of uh, stress caused by globalization? It's alongside that a little bit, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's, it's been along for quite a, quite a while. I mean, after the, the, the glorious years of 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody realized that, oh, the, uh, the health system costs money. Right. right. Oh, yes, it costs money. Well, that's, that's, that's how it should be. But it doesn't make enough money in for people paying the taxes. So as it costs too much money, People are kind of brainwashed into that understanding that oh we got to go this way we got to we got to cut the budget on that and and go down. On that. So if a woman has a baby who's in the workforce in France, Julie, what sort of maternity leave would she get, and would the husband get some? Yes, yeah, so a husband gets how many weeks, Patrick? Eleven. I think we own four or five weeks for yeah. husband something. And like for that. the yeah. woman, sixteen weeks. My sister-in-law had. Uh, I missed it. I had my kids here in the states. But uh, my sister-in-law has three children, and with the first child, she got to stay home with 80% of her pay also. And for the second child, second and third, then she gets a year of the first child, and for the second and third child, three years. She got to stay home with 80% of her pay, plus... So that's um, a French sort of example of family values, Mm. it sounds like, and and they're paying for it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about what distinguishes the French people today within the European Union. Our guides, our guests are Patrick Vidal and Julie Sanvo. Patrick and Julie, the big news for me as a, as a, somebody who writes guidebooks and takes tours around, around Europe is there's a lot of um, nervousness in France right now because it's a target for terrorists. And uh, I hate to even bring it up because statistically, it's a very, very safe place to travel. But the reality is tourism to Paris is down because people are nervous about terrorism. What is the feeling in France? Is there a sense that, that France is closing down and has too many soft targets or is there a sense that we're not going to be terrorized by the terrorists? Oh, absolutely. We're not going to be terrorized by the terrorists. I mean, they have a, a sense of the solidarity of everybody going out and, and not hiding, not, not letting them uh, keep us from living. And in France, being out in the cafes and, and living and enjoying life, that is part of the French identity. That is what they do. They enjoy life. Because after a couple of times terraces and cafes were targeted and right. for a few days afterwards understandably people were nervous about eating on, on the sidewalk right. and then later on it's bounced back and you almost as a matter of declaring we're not going to be held exactly. down we're exactly. going to go out to a going out and going out to the streets and, and, and being out there You're right. Patrick it seems like France is a symbol of freedom and that's almost one reason why it would be a, an exciting target. France has always stood for freedom, liberty, égalité, fraternity people's tolerance you know do you see any relation to that? Uh, is France symbolic of Western values of tolerance? I don't know. It's, it's very difficult to say. I mean, if we take it like that, it sounds logical that, uh, that yeah, maybe, maybe France is one of the first targets on that kind of things. But uh, 
I mean, France is a big land of immigration anyway, so you had a lot of people who, uh, who came there, and uh, I mean, after for the rebuilding in France in the 1960s, 1970s. So you brought a lot of guest workers in? Absolutely, from the former colonies. Right. So uh, Muslim religion is a second religion in France, after Catholic. So is it linked to that? Is it just happens because we've got so much of that population? It's very difficult to say. I mean, that's... Uh, it's easy to imagine, but... Uh, now, my, my image of France is very strong in the face of this risk. On the other hand, uh, there are realities. And uh, you've got a rising right-wing party. This uh, Marine Le Pen is suddenly a viable candidate and used to be a French candidate. It's right? not suddenly. I mean, uh, in 2002, her father was already on the second round of the presidential election. So this is really nothing new? It's not. I mean, it's, it's, it's still scary and, right. and annoying. Yeah. But uh, but uh, no, it's nothing new. I mean, the, uh, the uh, extreme right-wing party has been around for 20 years, very strong. And very big. Could you imagine that party taking power? I don't. I don't think so because I think that even if they, if she goes to the second round, I mean, everybody from the left wing to the conservative will vote for the other one who's going to be still standing. I don't know if you, if you're very familiar with that, but in France, the uh, the presidential election are popular vote. You got the first round with as, as many candidates as you want, and uh-huh. the two best ones are going to the second round. Now that's reassuring because there are societies in Europe that end up getting a minority candidate winning because he had a plurality of the vote. Yeah, no, it doesn't but work. That like doesn't that. happen. Right, that's why they set it up that way. So, so that, that, that is very happen. smart. That's yeah. something a lot of societies. So what produce. happens? What happened in two thousand two, for instance, is that the uh, the left wing candidate was too weak. He didn't mm-hmm. make it to the second round. So we had Jack Chirac, the uh, mm-hmm. the, the former president. And uh, Mr. the father of Marine Le Pen, who came to the second right. round. And then everybody in the society, anybody who was going to vote for the left wing anyway, voted for Jacques Chirac because they wanted to block the way to the Front National. So he did 80% of the votes or something like that. If you have a friend in France who's going to vote for the anti-immigration party, who's afraid of the threat of immigration, what are their concerns? What is the downside of immigration? Is it a threat to their jobs? or, or Well, what? the social tourism you were talking about before, about the the money for all the programs being used up by people that come into the country and are not paying into it because we also have a high unemployment rate with the youth okay, uh, paying so into a, the system. a French person in the countryside could be dutifully paying their taxes and waiting their turn, and then suddenly somebody who came to the country new, to their mind, is cutting the line in front of them. To you get know, this. there's no difference. Huh? You, you, got the same, you hear the same things in the States. Mm-hmm. I mean, right, you know, we talk right, with yeah. a lot of American people. We hear exactly the same, the same fear you got the, the same, same dynamic. You got the same thing in England. My wife is English. I spend a lot of time in England. You got the, the same kind of. Okay, so the media. dynamic that brought them Brexit and so on. Same thing. The dynamic that brought us President Trump, Trump yeah. and the dynamic yes. that, that you're dealing with. It's the with. same everywhere, yeah. Yeah. Fear. How yeah. does media play into that in France? Oh, it's a big thing, it's a huge thing. I mean, so? I've got a little example on that. I mean, we, we've heard for years about the problem in Calais. I don't know if you heard this one. We've got uh, refugee camps. All the refugees in, trying to go to England, okay. stuck in so Calais. So they're all the Syrian, Iraqi people who want to go to England because they speak English and they've got family there. So they don't want to stay in Europe, they're in continental Europe. They mm. want to go to England. Mm. They cross Europe and they get to the border, to English Channel, Channel, and they get stopped there because the English don't want them. So right. we had a camp with something like 2,000, 3,000 people in they, yeah, third, world, third world country jungle. Right. I mean, amazing. I had friends who went there. I mean, disgusting. I mean, so this is the closest part of France to England, and yeah. the refugees want to go to England because yeah. they have family there. They have a reason to go there, Yeah, and they're so stuck in France. This one makes big news. We talk about it all the time. But what we don't talk about is that in Ventimiglia, which is the border between Italy and France, mm-hmm. there are some a camp of refugees which are blocked access by the French government. They don't want them in France. 
as right. they want to come to France. So France is creating the same problem on the other side of the border that is got from England there. But we talk only about the one from the English. We don't talk about the one that we're creating in Italy. So, you know, and it's all media thing. President Trump got elected with this Make America Great Again slogan on their hats. Is there an equivalent in France? Is Pro- there... Priority to the French. Is that the word? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. What, yeah. Is, what is that word? Priority to the French. How do you say that, the in, jobs, how do you say that the, in French? La priorité aux Français, so right. something like that, yeah. yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Julie Sanvo and Patrick Vidal about the, the stresses and the challenges and the beauties of France. And uh, it's something we'll just have to pay attention to and, yeah, and we'll talk again. For me, it's very interesting that, that governments tax their people in order for a society to collectively pay for things that, that all can use together. And I appreciate public lands, you know, uh, toll-free highways, public broadcasting. What are some national budget priorities that you think are uniquely French that you are proud of, that France takes care of in a collective kind of way, Julie? Well, health care. How so? Well, I had an experience in France where I used the healthcare system and it completely changed my life because if I was in the United States, I would have lost everything that I owned. Mm -hmm. Um, But in France, not only was my situation taken care of, but I also received um, help from the government so that I could um, not work and stay home and take care of my daughter who was sick. And you were an immigrant. Yes. So, so yeah. Yeah. Patrick. Education. Education is free. I mean, my my son is in France. He's he's studying. He's not studying much, but he's pretending (laughs) to study. And, uh, and it doesn't cost anything. I mean, it's even... You're paying co- for it in taxes. It costs something. Yeah, exactly. Indirectly, it doesn't cost anything to me straight there. I didn't have to save any money. I mean, uh, my, my daughter moved to England to do her studies, and uh, it cost me a little bit more. Is there a sense that educated people are becoming the out-of-touch elite? I don't know. It's, diffi- it's difficult to say. I mean, it's, the, the problem is that at the moment, the government is priding itself to send something like 80-85% of the kids to university. 85, 80 or 85% yeah. go to the university, yeah. yeah. So um, there is a, a passion for educating the populace But, you know, France. we come back to the, what we were talking about, the fear about immigration. I mean, if you send 85% of your kids to education, to, to university, who's going to work in the street? Who's going to be the plumber and the electrician? Mm. I mean, if you block the, uh, the immigration... Where do you find those people? I mean, so that's who's, going, same who's going to do here. those jobs? Mm. Because we, as middle class, I mean, I'm, I'm somebody's somebody's got to pick somebody's the grapes. Got, you can't hey. have that fine wine if somebody's not going to pick the grapes. Absolutely, and make the bread for the morning. I mean, oh man. Well, that's the beauty of travel. It's just to learn that other countries have the same challenges, and somehow we got to figure this out. Patrick Vidal and Julie Sonvo, merci bien. Wine is big business in France. And in wine regions like the Alsace and the border with Germany, you find many vintners who welcome visitors with walks through their characteristic cellars and generous tastings. Join me in a dank yet cheery cellar with Alsatian vintner Jean-Claude as we lament the end of wooden casks and the lack of good coopers these days, but celebrate how new technology is actually a blessing for wine lovers. I'm Rick Steves, and I'm in Alsace, in Igusheim, and this is wine country, the Rue du Vin. And uh, I'm with my friend and guide, Jean-Claude. Hello, Jean-Claude. Hello. Now, Jean-Claude, these are big wooden casks. Do they make it this way anymore? No, it's over. You can hardly find coopers here uh, who make wooden casks. Coopers are the people who made these casks. Coopers who made the casks. So they had to age this wood and and hammer these things on That's right. In the Alsace region, it's not being made anymore. On the uh, well, we have more and more stainless steel. Well, stainless steel, we have less risk when making white wine than in wooden casks, where you don't have too much tannin in the wine. 
too much tannin. Tannin in the wine, look, not, not like in red wine. Oh, so, so this is white wine white here. White wine mainly, okay. So white wine is better with the stainless steel? Uh, very much better, less risk to, okay, to when you oh, age the so wine. it's an improvement, a modern yes. improvement. That's right. But I like the atmospheric old uh, cellar. You can smell it. And it smell, can you smell it? I can smell it. Wow. <laughs> oh baby, it's nice. Let's go outside and see what it's like in, in, in Alsace on the Rue du Vin. We're coming up the cellar and this is the old place where you taste the wine. Degustation means you can taste the wine. I'm Rick Steves. We're having a good time in Alsace. Happy travels. We'll hear what challenged Sarah Glidden's preconceptions about Israel next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Shalom, shalom. I'm Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm Mr. Vevim Rick Steves. That was Hebrew for I'm Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Koimli Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm Mr. Vevim Rick Steves. Sarah Glidden was in her early 20s when she decided to take the birthright program for a free trip to Israel. As a young, progressive American Jew, she was wrestling with her feelings on Israel and Palestine. She got into a political argument with her mom, and that spurred her interest in going to the Holy Land. She went there, and by talking with as many people as she could, she recorded her personal narratives in the form of a modern-day, non-fiction comic book. It's called How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less. Sarah joins us now to share how her views of Israel have evolved over the years. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. So you had an argument with your mom. Well, I often do. <laughs> and, then, and then you just decided, what did you decide? Well, you know, I think my mom is also, you know, like you say, a liberal Was this Jew, a Palestine-Israel argument? Yes. Okay, and you're and, a young progressive Jew, and your mom is probably remembers more the yeah, hardship. Yeah, she has, you know, different ideas than I do. And, you mm. know, even though we have similar thoughts on a lot of things, but she said, you know, why don't you just, you should go there. They have that birthright trip. It's for free. So if you're why don't so you smart, go? Why don't you just go yeah. there? And you took, I understand any, uh, is it for American Jews or any Jew anywhere? I think they have these programs worldwide. They definitely do. So it's called the birthright trip. Birthright Israel, yes. And it gives you an all-expenses-paid trip for 10 days to Israel. Yes. And this had been going on for some time, and I had known about it for a long time, but I'd never been interested in going. Did you have friends who have gone on it? Um, I took friends with me yeah. when I went, but I had just started making comics around that time, and I thought, oh, I was doing these autobiographical comics about my daily life, and I thought, oh, this will be a good project. I'll go on this birthright trip, and then I'll make some comics about how crazy it is. And this trip, is it actually a tour with a group of uh, young American Jews that are going over there to learn about their heritage? Yes. Uh, the way it works is that it's licensed. So if you're a tour company, you can apply to do a birthright tour. There are certain places that you have to go, like Jerusalem, like the Wailing Wall, and to Masada. But then besides those required stops, these tours can do different things. So there's one that's like you know, for kayaking and, you know, doing really outdoorsy so there's stuff. Lots of, but you're going to see Masada, which yes. I can understand why. Mm -hmm. That was the last holdout of the um, Jewish uh, zealots, that was their mm -hmm. call, right, against the Roman Empire. Yes. 2,000 years ago, mm -hmm. after the, the rebellion and the Jews were, that was the, the diaspora started for it then. Mm -hmm. And then there is uh, the Wailing Wall or the, the Western Wall, mm -hmm. the most holy place, I think, for, for Jews. And then uh, what's the great museum uh, 
the Holocaust. Oh, the, the Holocaust Museum, uh, Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem. So I would imagine those three are uh, part of every trip. Oh, definitely. And also um, Galilee. Galilee. Mm-hmm. Why Galilee? That's more Christian history. Yeah, well, you know, they want to take us into the Golan Heights. Oh, okay. I, yeah. Because standing, I went up on the Golan Heights, and mm-hmm. there, you're standing on top of a Syrian pillbox. Yeah. And you can understand why Israel wants the high ground. Yes, um, and so we were there. And also, you know, Tel Aviv, Independence Hall, which is where they declared their independence. And so these were the places that we all had to go. And so I came in as kind of like this uh, skeptical tourist. Um, you know, I was willing to listen to what this tour had to say, but I also was very aware that this was, you know, what the purpose of this trip was. It was to make me feel a connection to Israel so that maybe I'd want to move there. So were or... you a teenager at the time? No, no, I was uh, 26. 26, yes. okay. So, and you went in a little skeptical, and somebody's paying for this. I mean, there's an agenda. Yes, yeah. And uh, how, how did it impact you? Well, you know, I think that going someplace makes anybody understand that things are more complicated than they can seem um, when you're looking at it from across an ocean. You know, I read a lot about the conflict. I you know, paid attention to the news and I had my feelings about everything. And I wouldn't say that the trip changed my mind. I wouldn't say that I just, you know, dropped my support for the Palestinians or said, oh, okay, this, I guess I understand why Israel does this and it's justified. But I definitely came to understand the point of view. And I think that there is a difference between understanding and you know, condoning. The same thing happened to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I had a, a Jewish guide, an Israeli guide showing me around, and I had a Palestinian guide showing me around on both sides of the wall. And uh, yeah, it's valuable. You you see, oh, I understand why you've got to be this way, and I understand why you have, you know, we have baggage here in the United States. And, oh, sure. Uh, Israel's <laughs> got baggage, and Palestinians have baggage. And I think it's important to try to empathize with other people's baggage. On your birthright trip, Sarah, did it uh, arrange for you to meet different kinds of people in Israeli society? Uh, Yes. A part of every birthright trip is that they have some young Israeli soldiers join you on the trip for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. So they come in and they're wearing their uniforms and they have their guns and everything. And that is supposed to humanize the soldiers. um, And then, you know, they become friends with people and they hang out and you're all drinking together. So they do that. We have different stops where you have guides telling you stories and stuff. But there isn't a lot of interaction, like natural interaction. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Glidden. Her book is How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less, a report on what it's like for a young American Jew to go to Israel on an all-expenses-paid 10-day trip and learn about her heritage and Israel. Sarah, when you went to Israel, did you connect with any sort of Israeli counterculture? I mean, what's it like in the big city? How vibrant is it? You know, they didn't give us a lot of time to go off and see shows on our own. But I did become friends with this guy, Nadan, who was kind of, he was there as a helper. He was an Israeli who is kind of, this was his job to be there and help chaperone the trip. And so he and I talked a lot about politics. We, you know, got into arguments. We joked together. And so he was kind of my window into normal young mm-hmm. Israeli life. Um, and after the trip ended, I spent a couple more days in Israel, in Jerusalem, where he lived, and he kind of showed me around a little bit. And yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to identify as a young Jewish American. You know, there's a lot of things culturally in common, but then there are a lot of differences. A lot of ways, Tel Aviv reminded me of California. Yeah, it does feel that way. Um, Just know. a big city on the coast. Yeah, we went to some art galleries. Um, How would you compare Tel Aviv and Jerusalem? Oh, I feel like they're very different. Jerusalem has a lot of tension, and it's just so much older. And 
you know. Tension probably because there's four different communities living within that medieval wall. That and, you know. And overlapping religious sites. Overlapping religious sites. And it's this older city where, you know, a lot of places where an Israeli friend might live, that used to be a Palestinian's home. And Tel Aviv is a much newer settlement. Um, it was built by the Jews, I believe. Um, and it's right next to an old Palestinian city, Jaffa. But Jerusalem is, you know, just highly contested, extremely contested volatile. because the Palestinians want East Jerusalem to be their capital if they were ever to have an independent country. Yeah, there's talk about it being a shared capital. There's so many dimensions to a trip to Israel. You can get the the appreciation of the Holocaust and the appreciation of the heritage when you go to Masada and Yad Vashem and so on. You can also just bob in the Dead Sea. What was that like? <laughs> um, <laughs> People have to do it. <laughs> not as fun as it looks. You know, the Dead Sea is... It's mucky, it, it isn't it? burns your eyes. The rocks can cut up your feet. And if you have a cut, it's really so salty. It's painful. Yeah, it's more fun to watch other people yeah. in the water than... It's like, do you want to go swimming in the in Dead Sea? Well, do you want to pour salt on a wound? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you venture into the West Bank at all? Um, Not on that trip. In fact, I really wanted to. That was kind of my goal after the birthright trip ended was to go into the West Bank. But, you know, I had a lot of people telling me, that, oh, it's dangerous. Oh, you can't go. You're a Jewish woman traveling alone. And I let that fear get to me. And I really regretted it for a long time. And I went back to Israel in 2011, this time wearing the hat of a journalist. And, you know, I went every day to the West Bank to do reporting. Uh, I went to different areas. Just and, through the wall from Jerusalem? Uh, yeah. You can you take just, the bus from you just go right, through right the next wall. to the I, old city. I walked city. right through the turnstile. It's like going from San Diego to Tijuana. Yeah, I went to Bethlehem. I went to Nilin, which is more in the north. And, you know... As a Jewish American and no... God, it's, it's fine. People were really, you know, happy to talk about, you know, their lives there. Um, Ramallah is a, a modern city. You know, the, my Israeli friend who I was staying with didn't believe me. He wanted to know what's Ramallah like. Yeah. They have stores there. And I was like, yes, they that do. That was the most striking <laughs> thing to me when I went to the West Bank and Israel, how little people in the West Bank knew about Israel and how little people in Israel knew about what was on the other side of that wall. Well, that's what walls do is they keep people separated. And I think that it's a shame. And I'm glad that I've gone this, I wish I had gone the first time around. Yeah. Now, this wall is is generally between the whole length of the West Bank. Uh, mm -hmm. And generally, it's 20 feet tall and solid as a building. Yeah, I don't know if it's completed. Uh, mm. When I was there, it still it wasn't like the whole length of the border, but in but certainly around, many places around, it was. Uh, near Jerusalem, when you cross into Bethlehem, it's, it's a physical wall. Yes. And uh, as you said, people on both sides of the wall don't know each other. I have guide friends in Bethlehem that never been to Jerusalem and vice versa. And it's a tragic thing because all the kids know is their parents' perspective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have settlements that have different roads that go to the settlements that are separate roads from the Palestinian roads. It's very just everybody is kept apart from each other. Now, you wrote this book, How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less, and you did it as a cartoonist. I love the way you sketch all these people and maps, and uh, it's not so many words, so it's much more comfortable to, to read <laughs> through this thing. Tell us a little bit about this style of reporting and journalism. Why do you do it with comics? Well, comics is the language that, you know, kind of works for me. Um, I've been an artist my whole life. I always loved drawing, 
And I went to school for painting, but, you know, I got out of school thinking, what am I going to do with a painting degree? Like, I'm not going to make paintings that go in galleries. And so for a long time, I didn't really know what to do with the art that I like to make. And then when I discovered comics, I realized that this was a way to express yourself, to tell your story and tell information to people in a way that's, I think, somewhat more accessible. So for this book, I definitely didn't want to come across as an expert. I wanted this to be my personal story, my experience, but I wanted it to be easy for people to kind of follow me on this trip and to almost experience it for themselves. You know, this is a young girl who doesn't really know very much. I kind of assume the role of like a dopey, like neurotic tourist. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that You know, this is just stuff that I was curious about, and I hope that my reader can be curious with me and question things and just listen and learn things. And you've traveled, and you're a young American Jew, and your family is uh, excited enough for you to understand it, to encourage you to take this birthright trip. What's your take on media in Israel and in the United States? My God, it's, well, it was 10 years ago that I went on this trip, and things were not looking good then, but they're even worse now media. We've just seen Facebook has become an echo chamber where you get to see whatever the people in your bubble are are reading. And I think that people are less likely to look outside their own political perspective. You know, me too. I have my newspapers that I read. I have my NPR Mm -hmm. stations that I listen to. And so I can be completely separated from the other side of things. And, you know, when it comes to reporting on Israel, that's the same way. You can find the news that you want to read um, that reflects your political point of view. And I think that we really need to take a deep breath and listen to each other a little bit more. Reach out of the bubble. Get both narratives. I mean, there's no better example of a very complicated issue than Palestine and Israel, where you really need to get both narratives to be able to have any thoughtful take on the situation. Sarah Glidden visited Israel for the first time as a guest of the Birthright Program. It takes young American Jews on free sponsored tours of Israel. Sarah describes her experience and the perspectives of the people she met in her graphic novel called How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less. Her website is sarahglidden.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Craig is calling in from Chicago. Craig, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick, and hey, Sarah. How are you doing? I vacationed in Israel in 2013, and I noticed two things that really struck me. The first is that the people in Israel struck me as very happy. It's not something like I saw people smiling on the street. I just detected that among the people. They seem very happy. They seem to live life with a purpose. And then the second thing that really struck me is that you see all colors of the world in Israel. Um, most American Jews are of Ashkenazi background, meaning Northern European background. I saw, you know, Jews who are Mizrahi, Ethiopian, Sephardic. You see all the colors of of the world in Israel, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, um, that's definitely true. It is striking. There is a lot of diversity in Israel. But like here in the U.S., you know, we have a lot of diversity, but there's a lot of complications that come with that. There is racism. There is, you know, people have different ways of relating to each other. But, you know, Israel is a a place where people from all over the world go. You know, there's a lot of Russian Jews that come there. Um, You know, definitely the Ethiopian population is rather big. And so, 
you know, yeah, it is a striking thing about the country. It's a fascinating demographic makeup. You've got, what, 8 million people in Israel, 12 million if you include Palestine. Within Israel, 6 million are Jews and 2 million are Arabs. Mm -hmm. And uh, within the 6 million Jews, I think almost half of them are first generation. Yeah. And that is another thing. First generation meaning they've emigrated from all over the globe. Yeah. Many yep, from Africa, true. many from former, former Soviet Union. I spent some time in Argentina. My husband's Argentine, so we lived down there for a while. And uh, he knows a lot of Argentines. You know, Argentina has a really big Jewish population. And so a lot of Argentines go live in Israel. And I was struck that road signs in, in many parts of Israel are in, uh, in Hebrew, in Arabic, in English, and in Russian. Mm-hmm. Those four languages. Yes. Indicating there's a lot of first-generation Russian Jews that have become young, new Israelis that have yet to learn Hebrew. Yes, that's true. And, you know, a quarter of the population is is Arab, is Arab-Israeli. And this is not just, you know, Palestinians who live in the Palestinian territories. This is Arab-Israelis who live in Israel proper, uh, Druze as well. So, you know, it's not just Jews. It's, you know, this is a very diverse population. Craig, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. I hope to see you in Chicago soon. Cheers. Uh, Thanks. Cheers. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Glidden, and her book is How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less. Sarah, there's so many people wondering about going to the Holy Land. I'd like to close our discussion just with a little advice. First of all, if you're thinking of going and you're a Jewish American, what are the ins and outs of the birthright program? Is it something you'd recommend? Can anybody just sign up? And maybe that's the perfect way to have 10 days in Israel with a good education and extend a little bit with some free time on your own. Um, anyone can. I think the age range is 18 to 27 now. And I would say, like, something that Americans should do more of is travel. Um, a lot of Americans don't even have a passport. And part of that is because travel is expensive. And this is a free trip. And so it's giving people an opportunity to go someplace. And I would say that you should go. Um, you should be critical of what you're listening to. Do your homework. But also use it as an opportunity to visit other places. There are other trips that can show you other places around Israel, like there's a Birthright Unplugged trip, especially designed for young people who've been on the Birthright Israel trip to go to the Palestinian territories and to kind of see the other side of things. Well, Um, that would be an attempt to give the other side of the story, which the people who do the Birthright program probably wouldn't be necessarily promoting. But, you know, they won't stop you. You know, I was very upfront with the Birthright program when I was about to go on this trip. You know, I told them I would be making a book about it. I told them that I disagreed with um, some of the stuff that they stood for. And I told them that I was interested in going to the West Bank. And they said that that's fine. We encourage people to do what they want to do with this trip. You know, you can also go on the birthright trip and then go to Jordan and, Mm -hmm. you know, go to Petra and, you know, see that. And so I think that, that people should go and they should use it as an opportunity to see even more places and to definitely travel on their own. Um, without a guide, you can fly thanks to the birthright program to Tel Aviv. And then you can fly back from Israel, but you can side trip from there. Sure, as you, you like. could fly to Turkey and then come back to Israel and then leave from there again. I think you have like three months. So, so that's uh, that's a great opportunity. And when you arrive in Israel, you can request politely they don't stamp your passport. That's true. If you want to go to other countries in the region, I would recommend not having your passport stamped. And I've been to Israel several times, and I've always found they're glad you're there. And they're happy not to stamp your passport, and they understand why you would ask that. Yes. Sarah Glidden, thanks so much for joining us. And your book, How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less, is a great way to gain a better understanding of Israel in a lot less than 60 days. (laughs) Thanks Thanks so much. 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the details for each week's show. Plus, Rick has an app with detailed walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for France, Paris, Provence and the Riviera, and Rick's French phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for France and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.